Welcome to the Hobcast, a weekly podcast from Hobeck Books, an independent publisher of thrillers, crime, and suspense novels. Each week, we'll take you behind the scenes of what we do, the challenges and the triumphs, the bumps and troughs of building a new creative business in this pandemic world. We'll hear from the people who make all this possible, the authors, cover designers, and editors, and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hopcast from Hobeck Books, as we combine trad values and an indie spirit. Hello, Hello and welcome to the Hobcast. Welcome also to Aki, who's purring in the background. <laughs> We are fresh from, well, I wouldn't say fresh. I was going to say, is that the right word? It's really not the right word. Um, From a many hours trip back from the northeast of England, we've been to Sunderland and Durham overnight, and uh, we've just got back to Hobeck Towers. So how many miles do you predict we've travelled in Uh, that time? I've I've driven about 500 miles in a couple of days. But would you walk that far? <laughs> no, I wouldn't do a proclaimers uh, for sure. Uh, but we are back, and literally the first thing we've done, apart from feed the cat, is to grab the microphones and to record this podcast, which is show number sixty-eight of the Hobcast. Sixty-eight, yes, we're, we're rattling through them, aren't we? Yeah, we are. We are, and we are. Agent Hobart and Rebecca Collins together. We run Hobart Books, independent publishers in the UK of the following genres: crime, mysteries. Thrillers. Suspense. Was that your northeastern accent? Not really. It was sort of halfway there. Anyway, um, yeah, it's been a pleasant weekend, and uh, we re- had a, some good news. In fact, the only news we're going to focus on before we get to our big interview, which is with the fabulous Ewan Thornycroft, who is an agent of some standing with AM Heath, one of the big agencies in London. <laughs> He's also the agent of our very own Mark Whiteman and Waking the Tiger. So uh, we um, were very glad to speak to him. We've obviously dealt with him in a business sense, but it was lovely to hear how he became an agent and what he thinks of the industry at the moment and lots of other things in between. It was a fun interview, as they tend to be here on the Hobcast Book Show. Thank you for joining us this week. So we've got some news, which we will very happily celebrate, and that is that two of our entries into the John Creasy Award for New Blood in the CWA Daggers, that's just the Crime Writers Association, two of our authors have been long-listed for the John Creasy Award. Yeah, fantastic. So we found out about this last night. We were on our way back from a lovely meal in Durham, and um, I saw a tweet saying, um, I think it was from our lovely friend Donna, saying um, that she was so pleased that um, uh, one of her favourite books that she read last year was nominated, and I just put nominated what? <laughs> I hadn't seen it. Well, we kind of lost track. I mean, we put the entries in and a number of, for a number of our books for different categories mm. and kind of lost track of when they were coming and being announced. Well, I knew it was this weekend, but I didn't know exactly what time. And I think, you know, I just, I'd forgotten it was Saturday yeah. last night. And so it clicked once I realised. But yes, and then I looked at the list and saw there were two, two Hobbit books. Which is fantastic. And you consider the, the long list in this category... Uh, apart from Harper Collins, we're the only publisher with two nominations. Yes, we're very proud of that. Fact. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. So you know, we've only been going a couple of years uh, as a company, let alone a publisher, really. And um, here we are with two nominations in a very prestigious category and a great set of awards, alongside some amazing names. Oh, there's people like Mark Billingham, um, Janice Hallett, 
um, you know, um, to name just a couple of N.W. them. N.W. Craven's in for the, yes, uh, of course for the Ian Fleming, and he was really thrilled with, yeah. with his nomination. So it is a, this is a big deal. And our two nominees are Mike Whiteman for Waking the Tiger and Anthony Dunford's Hunted, which was one of the first books we published. Yes, so it seems quite a long time ago in a way, but... Um, so the, the CWA awards cover the the twelve months they do it every year and yeah. it covers those twelve months. So um, yeah, I mean I'm thrilled, I'm absolutely thrilled. I think for me, I mean Bloody Scotland was a, a big deal as well when Mark um, was longlisted and shortlisted for those awards. But yes. this is the other one that is a really big deal. Yeah, it's it may, it's a realistic competition for a company like us and for our authors to be involved in. But it's still an achievement because there are some amazing names and some amazing winners of the, of the CWA. And um, it really is a mark of quality. You know, if we, we've gone through that judging uh, and our authors have, have scored mm. in any of the categories, it's an achievement. So we're really thrilled, you know, to, to be the only publisher apart from HarperCollins, who are the second biggest publisher in the world, <laughs> to be... Um, to be second on that in that category yeah, yeah. to have two nominations in a category like that is fantastic so mm. um we've taken a great fillip from that and uh you know just encouraging because ultimately you know we've read those manuscripts and decided we wanted to publish them and got them to to market and other people appreciate them too so uh yeah wonderful yeah i mean like you say it makes us feel better about our ability to choose good books it does let's have a look at the list um if i may yeah so uh, there are a number of categories, and uh, the gold dagger is for more established writers, really. But it's, uh, yeah, uh, but it's... Not yeah. entirely, but, but nonetheless. So uh, some of the names involved there, Rabbit Hole, which we've mentioned before by Which Mark I've Bellamy. read, and I really enjoyed it. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Will Dean is also on that list. He's uh, on my to-read list, Absolutely. Definitely. Paula Hawkins, A Slow Fire Burning mm. from Doubleday. Uh, again, very familiar name. Uh, this is an interesting one, Lightseekers by Femi Coyote, uh, who's with Bloomsbury. Um, she's uh, They're up for it. And Abir Mukherjee, The Shadows of Men. Of course, Of yeah. course, richly deserved. William Shaw as well, who's known to us. Yeah. The Trawler Man by, uh, by him. And uh, that's published by Quercus. Uh, and that is a very strong list. Uh, in fact, it goes on for another few more here. Yes. Um, and uh, it really is... Uh, it's it's fantastic. Uh, do you know we've missed something here? What's that? Unless I'm misreading the list. The very bottom of the gold dagger. Uh, the very bottom of the gold dagger? No, that's the bottom of the John Creasy. Is it? Yeah. Are you sure? Yes. Okay. You're talking about Mark? Yes, yeah, I am. No, that's, that's really John... weird. That's just the way it's sort of yeah, come out. Yeah, so it kind of formatted like that. Uh, so the... <laughs> he got a little excited I then. I did, I did. I thought Mark Whiteman was up for the for the gold. No, I, I no. Oh, well. He's, he's definitely new blood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, fair enough. That's wonderful. Anyway, historical daggers, um, you know, some great names there as well. Mm. Um, so, you know, these are some of the best writers in the field but what i like the about UK. the the dagger awards is it's not only just covers um crime fiction which you know is a big area of this uh whole genre but short stories as well and there's a debut dagger i think is fantastic that's people who haven't published yet mm-hmm. yeah and um also non-fiction crime non-fiction crime writing yeah yeah absolutely 
No, it's terrific. Well, that was our, our big news of the week. And, uh, you know, that's a, it, it's, it's a great, great fillip for us. Um, <coughs> so, uh, yeah, thank you to the CWA judges. Let's hope we get to the shortlist and hope maybe we'll yeah, win. Yeah, fin- fingers crossed. You never know. Why not? We've got to hope for it, haven't we? So <coughs> we have. Oh, we he's have. coughing. Hope he's got COVID coming back. No, I, well, I doubt it. I think it's just the impact of driving. For, I mean, having had COVID and only reshaking it off at the beginning of the week, mm. um, you know, yeah, and driving quite as long as it was, and um, yeah, it's been busy that last section. We we do have something else that's exciting that's happened during the week. I've started playing tennis with We were going to talk, I thought we'd talk about that after Okay, okay, we'll leave that one then for now. Okay, we'll leave that one hanging. (laughs) Uh, Okay, let's get to our interviews. We're going to keep it tight this week because we are exhausted, quite frankly. Uh, We spoke to Ewan Thornycroft, who is an agent with AM Heath, a very big agency in London. He's been in the business since the 90s. He actually, he's the agent for Mark Whiteman, Waking the Tiger, so there's a link there. There is a lovely link, and... um, we have, as I say, we've had business dealings with him and, you know, like any agent, pushed us hard and challenged us on a number of things. But nonetheless, we've got a great relationship with him. And as you'll hear in this interview, uh, I think he, he does a really good job of uh, explaining some of the myths that surround agents. Yeah. You know, because they're in a lofty perch. From a, from a lowly first-time writer trying to get an agent, it feels like an impossible He's basically dream. saying, isn't he, that... Agents are human beings as well. They are. They are. And, uh, you know, it was really terrific to speak to him. We uh, got, a, got, got a great deal from it. So uh, let's speak to Ewan Thornycroft. Ewan Thornycroft, thank you so much for joining us on the Hobcast Book Show. It's all great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. It's our pleasure. It's our pleasure. Now, we've obviously been working together with one of your authors, Mark Whiteman, and uh, to a very fruitful relationship that's been. But let's go back into your uh, the start of your career. What made you become uh, a literary agent um it's a good question and and i'll be completely honest when i was looking to get into publishing i didn't even know about literary agents i didn't know what they were i'd never really heard of them Uh, all i knew was all i thought i knew was that i wanted to be an editor um and you know that's what most people know when you talk about publishing you know what they think about going into it you know a lot of people are that's editorial i want to be an editor i want to work with words and books so I started off trying to get a job in editorial um, and 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 didn't get very far. And I think after one disastrous interview where I pretended I could type and then at the end of the interview, I then had to do a typing test with the, the interviewer standing behind me timing, uh, which, which I completely failed to, to, to manage. I think after that, I was like, oh, maybe it's not for me. Maybe publishing isn't for me. Um, but then kind of luckily... Um, I heard about uh, someone who was a literary agency. It was Curtis Brown, um, who was going away and they needed someone to fill in for a week. Um, so uh, I, I managed to get myself in there for a week. Um, and then um, while I was there, and this would never happen these days, and quite rightly so, while I was there, one of the assistants was leaving. Um, and so the person who I was working for said, well, you know, are you looking for a job? And I said, yes. Yeah. So, you know, we had an interview of sorts. Again, you would never be able to do that these days. And and I got the job. Um, and, you know, if I'm honest, I didn't really know a huge amount about what literary agency entailed. Um, but that's how I kind of got into it. And I was I was like the stereotypical T-boy to start with a photocopier. So I had this weird role where I was assisting an agent for half the day. And then the other half the day, I would be farmed out 
to any other agents whose assistants were away on holiday or, you know, were snowed under. So it was kind of a terrible job in a way because I'd then be having to work for these agents who I didn't really know mm. and didn't really know their lists. Um, and they were throwing all these things at me. And at the same time, having to work for the agent I was supposed to work for, but only being able to give her half my time. But so it was kind it was kind of ridiculous, but it was a fantastic a kind of learning curve and way into the industry. And it was a real eye opener about what, you know, um, uh, literary agents do and um and yeah that's how I got into it and realized that actually it kind of suited you know not to sound too grand but it suited my skill set in that you know you have to do a lot of different things um and of course you were very engaged uh with the authors you know that you were their first point of call and you know I think that's what I particularly enjoyed so yeah in short that's how I got into it so I would like to say there was a grand plan um <laughs> and again these days it would never happen like that and, and quite rightly so um and you know the caliber of people applying for these things these days you know are so high and they're so impressive and not to say that I wasn't impressive but and <laughs> probably wasn't quite as impressive as some of them are today but yes that's 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 happening that's interesting because that's very similar to how I got into publishing I covered someone's maternity leave and I was doing I was retyping my boss's emails he dictate his email replies to me like yes Hi, I remember those days I yes the email uh, talk to you soon you know as short as that and I had to type it up that's what I did I typed up the contracts you know but and then I got, uh, through that I got offered a job at OUP and I, I had a, a very casual interview like you say you know like yeah yeah you you know we know you so yeah you could have the job <laughs> yeah it's a shame in a way that they don't that that sort of system it's not really a system is it but that those opportunities like culture. yeah that it's, it's yeah well it is and it isn't I mean I suppose you know obviously you know that's how I got my job so I'm forever grateful for it but I you know it it doesn't really promote you know huge diversity and and particularly in those days you know it you know the industry was very opaque or I I, I found it very mm-hmm. opaque particularly age, agency you know that lots of people didn't really have websites um they didn't really kind of publicize themselves very much um and and so you you only could really get jobs in there if you kind of got to know people who knew someone. Um, and, and whereas now you know, publishing in, is is much more transparent. It's still got quite a long way to go, but it is more transparent. And you know, it, so it makes it much more open to a much wider range of people. And it's good that actually you can't just get a job because you happen to be in the right place at the right time. You know, that does still happen, but it's good that actually, if you want to go into publishing or agenting, regardless of who you are, where you come from, you know, there are more obvious routes to do it. So, so yes, it's a shame that kind of more informal thing doesn't happen as much because, you know, it's, it's sometimes where the alchemy happens, you just meet someone and, you know, you find out about something you didn't really know before. But I think, you know, going forward as an industry, it's good that there's a more kind of um, transparent, and 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 a process led way of of getting jobs. Yeah. Uh, in terms of that experience, though, being thrown in the deep end and working for all, figuring out the angles very very quickly with different types of characters, you must have um, worked with uh, some legends of the the sort of the old school culture. Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, I won't give you names, but so my, you know, when I started. I guess I kind of spanned that old school culture and then the the, the, the newer culture that we have today. Um, and I won't say a more professional culture today, but just, you know, I suppose different. And that old school culture was, it was still very much, you know, 
lunches, long lunches with authors, publishers, you know, drink was often involved. Um, uh, and, 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 you know, I remember starting out, you know, doing contracts, you know, contracts are coming in hard copy and if you were making amendments you'd be on a typewriter you're making the amendments typing them in on the margins and then using tipex to um yeah <laughs> and, and, and yeah exactly and then you know you think to today where it's just so different but but also the culture generally um you know the, the big personalities that you used to get and particularly when i started in that company you know some big personalities some amazing agents but you know very idiosyncratic in how they possibly did business which you know you don't get as much today um you know because just because of you know lots of you know cultures changed um and the way people do business has changed so so yeah there was it, it was it was a fantastic place to start and to learn um and and not only that it was great fun because it was it was quite big there were lots of people my age um so yeah it was it was it was good all around but i find you know it's difficult from i think i don't know quite what ages we both are in terms of you know uh, 48 <laughs> right. so, yeah, at the same time we're going into into our industry respective industries in our in in the 90s um, yeah and yeah i mean journalism and the bbc was full of big characters and and uh was just getting to the end of the you know, let's go and have a pint and discuss what we're going to do with the story kind of approach at lunchtime. I remember uh, taking authors out for breakfast sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> well, God, yes. <laughs> but I, I, I personally have found it difficult and, you know, and I've left the BBC now, but that transition in culture terms of what's acceptable and what's not, I, 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 I never bought into the whole sort of, you know, stuff that was going on and, and indeed was kicking against it at the time. But nonetheless, now the sort of approach I was taking through my career with some of that rubbing off on me, I suppose, found I found it very difficult to navigate with the new generation coming through for whom tolerance of anything that is, you know, ambiguous is, is much less. So is that something that you're having to negotiate as well, uh, you know, with the, with the shifting culture and the, the generational change that's come behind it? Yeah, I mean, I suppose it's like, I mean, it's always been thus, though, hasn't it? I mean, you know, as you get older, you know, a new generation comes up um, and they bring with them, you know, not necessarily different values, but different way of doing things. Um, and, you know, most of our initial reactions is to kind of go, well, you know, that's not how we did it. You know, maybe <laughs> yeah. I agree or maybe I don't agree. But it's always been like that. And, and you do have to change. And I suppose for me, um, you know, my kids are 15 and 13 and they're not shy of telling me when, you know, they think I've got an opinion that is, is wrong. Um, and that's, and that's quite, I mean, that's quite a good training for then actually when you're in an industry, which is undergoing change, um, you know, because you, you, you know, it does make you sit up and go actually, well, the way that I've done something, well, it, it may not necessarily be right. It might be, but it might be wrong. And, you know, we have, you know, a lot of, you know, like what we, colleagues and you know i've got an assistant who's kind of early mid-20s so a different generation to me but again you know but brilliant at you know telling me where she thinks i might you know have an outmoded you know opinion about something now i don't necessarily always agree with her but she definitely has opened my eyes to lots of things about you know how you know i should be acting in certain situations and things like that as do as as my kids do so Mm. i think i don't i don't find it difficult or a struggle i just think it's always been like that and i think we just always have we have to be open about things um and i think publishing you know 
you know, has needed to change and become more open. And, you know, quite often it's, it's a younger generation who feel, I, I guess, who feel that they have nothing to lose by actually airing it and making it a, a, a thing, an issue. And then it's the older generation who then, you know, finally sits up and, and take notice. So mm. I think I think it's a good thing, personally, um, even if even if I don't agree with some of the things, but I sure. think it's a good thing. And, and actually, that's a, you made an interesting point. I, I wonder whether our generation didn't feel happy about airing things that we sort of bottled it up a bit you know something made us uncomfortable or we weren't sure about it we just i i think there's an element of that i definitely remember having conversations with colleagues where we'd all have the same moan about how you know for instance news meetings would go and um we had uh bosses who would defend us straight one of us would cop it every morning and get get the full fireworks treatment you know the, the hairdryer in the in the football pendants, you know, where oh, that's a rubbish story. How dare you bring that in front of us? And one of one of us, you know, and we used to have a signal if um, because we were all in different little regional offices around the southern counties. So I'd be sat in my office in in Chichester, and someone would be in Hastings and Brighton and whatever. And if the big boss was in our HQ in Guildford, there was a, a three tap on the microphone thing signal to tell us that they were there. <laughs> we had to be on best behavior. <laughs> We had yeah. to, and we had to defend our corner because he would pick one of us and tear us apart every morning, and that, that would not be acceptable now. It just no. wouldn't be allowed. But that that was part of it, you know. That somehow bosses felt that they had a position where they could, yeah, strip you back, um, put you back in your place, uh, and make you stronger for it. But that's not. Really, yeah, <laughs> not really I mean, that's done now, is it? No, no I think, I'm quite glad I, about that actually. <laughs> Yeah, but I've, I always find it interesting because I think, you know, you're working in books, you know, books, it, 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 it's all about change, you know. So, uh, you know, there's always that thing, there's only seven stories or whatever it is. But for books to be successful, most of the time, they, they, they've got to present stories in different ways or characters in different ways. So actually, we, we, you know, anyone who works in the industry, you, the whole time, particularly in fiction, you're always working on stuff that is, you know, has to be presented. It has to be find a new way of engaging an audience. So, you know, it should be no surprise that in, as an industry, we should also be open to change, you know, all the time. You know, not just change for change's sake, but change because change is often really, really good. Um, mm. um, and, and I think, you know, when we started, perhaps, yes, I think some of these issues were issues we were aware of, but I think it was much easier to keep the status quo. And I think nowadays just people aren't, you know, the younger generation, they're just not prepared for that, you know, for that to be the case. And, and quite rightly so. Whereas, you know, when I came out of university, there was no question in my mind that I wouldn't get a job. Um, and most likely a job in something I wanted to do. Whereas I look at my kids now, or the people coming out of university now, and, you know, it's not certain they'll get a job. And it's, and it's certainly not certain they'll get a job in something they want to do. So, you know, for me, I can only speak for me personally, I think I had it good. Um, so actually, you know, full power to a younger generation who want to change things and, you know, because that status quo is just not going to work for them or isn't working. Mm. Mm. No, I agree. I'd rather they were active than passive. Sure. I mean, there was two, yeah, I mean, we're fast you pass many respects uh, in terms of when, when you started out and the point where you were in a position where you could build your own list and find your own authors how long did it take between you know starting off in that sort of one week opportunity to the point where people trusted you to have your own list 
Well, I think, um, it, it, there's, well, there's never there's never a moment in agenting where people trust you to have your own list. You, you have to you have to make your own luck, and you kind of have to force your way into people's consciousness and force them to trust you to make your own list. But for me. Um, you know, I, I was kind of lucky in a way in terms of timing. So I'd, I'd been there probably for about, I don't know, three or four years. Um, and there were, there were a number of other people in my position. And, you know, we all want, we, we wanted to be agents, um, but we were still assistants. Um, and no one was going to make us agents just like that. No one was going to say, well, you can be an agent now. And, and it's the same today. You, you know, so, <laughs> so you said so night. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. So, so you basically have to go out and you'd have to find, you know, your own authors while you were still doing your assisting job. So you'd have to moonlight, essentially. Um, and, you know, you had to do it on the side. Um, and, and, it, and it requires, you know, it does require quite a lot of courage to go out there and say to someone whose work you think is really good, look, I think you should sign with me. And they're like, OK, well, who do you represent and, who, you know, what are you? And you're like, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm still an assistant and I don't really represent anyone. So so but that's how you had to do it. And um, so that's what I started to do. And, you know, my a couple of my colleagues started to do. And it wasn't like that we were pretending to our agents that we weren't doing that. The, the agents knew that that's how you did it. Um, and, you know, so I found, you know, I, I started to sign up a couple of authors who I signed um, and sold. And then the luck came really when there was a management buyout at the company I was at and some of the older agents who'd been there for a while left or retired. Um, so it, it, it opened up opportunities. And, and, and I think it was around about that moment where myself and a couple of others were said, okay, well, you can start being junior agents essentially. Um, and for a while I still worked for one agent part-time and I could build my own list. And then by the end of my time there, which was like kind of eight years later, you know, I was a, a fully fledged agent. Um, so I suppose, yeah, it was, it, I was there for eight years, but I, I, I arrived as a T-boy I left eight years later as a, as a kind of fully fledged agent, but there was a transition period in the middle, which there always is for you know, edit, you know agents assistants trying to become trying to become agents. What um, what were the the things you learned at the, in that process in terms of reaching out to authors? Yeah, the, the, what were the the skills and the uh, I suppose the skill set. Yeah, because this is when we are saying when we read submissions, mm -hmm. you know, we, we have to have some of those skills to know what is a keeper and what isn't a keeper. So, yeah. And, yeah, and then there's getting people to, to trust you to, enough to sign for you. So, yeah, well, I think that the trusting thing was, I mean, I remember doing my first, you know, you, you went to talk, you know, you go and talk to creative writing courses as an agent. Um, and I remember doing my first talk and I, I think it was up in, Sheffield um I can't remember and um I remember going out the night before because it was first thing in the morning and being really nervous you know and I was like you know thinking well you know I've I don't represent anyone how am I going to you know what am I going to say so I think you know I decided my talk was really about the, my day you know what my day was what it involved because I you know I figured at that point that you know like just like I did when I came into publishing I knew nothing about agency you know so if I told them up, I did. And, and I think doing talks like that um, gave me a lot more confidence because, you know, I suddenly started to realise, well, actually, I know a lot more than I think I know. Um, and I certainly know a lot more than the people I'm talking to. But when you're in the industry, particularly when you're starting and particularly when you start at somewhere where you are the, the, the lowest of the low, it's 
easy to forget that you know a lot of a lot of information. Um, mm-hmm. So I suppose one of the skills I learned was actually, and I, and I can't say that even to this day I've mastered it, is was to be a lot more confident about actually my knowledge uh, and what I could bring to the table to an author I wanted to sign up with me. Um, I knew that I loved, you know, books and I knew that I loved stories and I knew if I found something that I loved, then, you know, I could hopefully convey my passion to an author. Um, But it was more about then learning to be more confident in actually my knowledge. And, And the thing is, you know, you're always learning as an agent, I, I find, um, you know, and we're just talking about change just now. Well, mm. things are always changing. So you're always learning. And, you know, when you have new colleagues, they bring in new ways of doing things. So even now, you know, you're, you're learning new stuff. But I think certainly when I started out, it was about, I guess, trying to project more an air of, look, you know, this is how this is. I love your book. This is what I love about it. This is how I think we can sell it. And this and this is why you should sign with me. Um, so for me personally, again, I can only speak for myself. It was what I learned was about being a lot more confident um, to, to go out there and and convince people that because I think if an author knows that you've got this passion, the real passion for their work um, and that, you know, you've got confidence about, you know, how you think you can sell it. then that's kind of half the job done in convincing them to come with you. Um, even, so even if you don't don't represent lots of many people which I didn't at the time well if you can convince them that as a person you know their book would be in pretty good hands um and they and you'd be a really good champion then you know you're more than halfway there yeah and they're probably just as nervous as you and also feeling that yes. sort of imposter syndrome of oh my god I'm talking to my own agent oh <laughs> yeah well it's, it's a thing that you know because I still do those talks now because I actually really you know I really enjoy them and you know one of the things I would say is like well you know one of the things I like doing about it is that, you know, lots of people, they think, well, agents, you know, they've got this kind of stereotypical idea. Either the agents are all sharks and they're just about, you know, they, they're just like Tom, you know, Tom Cruise in whatever it is. When he says, well, they show me the money line. It's just yeah, about yeah, money. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 and they're, Whereas actually, you know, agents are just like anyone else in publishing or people, you know, we love books, you know, we love books and it's a people industry. We like working with people. So it's a really great opportunity to show that actually, you know, I'm just like anyone else, you know, you know, I'm just a person who really loves books, you know, yes, my job is to then represent my author and get the best deals and, you know, fight their corner. But, you know, and ultimately, I'm just like the author. I'm doing it because I love writing. And I love books. So, yes, that's what you're trying to convince people of. Well, well not convince. That's trying to get them to believe. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's very similar to us as publishers, and you know, that's. <laughs> yeah, we all love books. Yes. That's why we're doing yeah. it. That's and why we're, we're here. Sharks and we're, we're, we're out there to do the best. <laughs> no. we're, we're, all, we're dolphins, well, I think. I mean, you know, the <laughs> pictures, but that's certainly how we we approach it. See, uh, yeah. I was going to ask. You must spend an awful lot of time reading. Uh, yes yeah and so luckily I really like reading <laughs> and I'm relatively I'm a relatively quick reader as well so um I'm not the quickest I know people who are quick enough but being a quick reader helps but yes I you know yeah I'm always reading um but I'm not just always you know obviously I'm reading a lot of the authors I represent I'm reading their work you know but you know I always I, I'm always reading outside of that just because I find it a really good well it's my way of relaxing for start but it's you know as we, again coming back to this idea of change you know the industry is constantly changing and people's tastes do change and as a as an agent in my position you do need to know what what people are, are wanting to read you know what is what is hitting the right note so um yeah it's it's i read my own author's work but i'm also reading pretty widely outside of that and and that's not a work 
think that is just because I like reading and, and it's books that I like reading. So Yeah, similar to us. I think if I just read crime all the time, I'd either go out and murder people or <laughs> <laughs> lose my mind. I have, I, I, for me, I have to read other books and like you say it also helps you keep on top of the industry and what what's popular and at the moment i'm reading uh, young mungo i love it oh right yes right. i want to read that yeah <laughs> i want to brilliant. read that it's brilliant <laughs> but, I, but i also think it's a really good you know you know when i talk to writers you know to suggest that they you know particularly when they're starting out to, to really urge them to read widely even if even if what they're writing is I don't know, let's say literary fiction or crime fiction. But, you know, you can learn so much as a writer just by reading really widely. You know, you could read a fantastic rom-com and you would get, you know, stuff from that that you can then use in your own books. You know, it's, it's just about being as broad as possible, I think, because I think all writers are different. They've all got different techniques and you can always learn stuff from them. And as a reader, um, you know, I'm pretty Catholic in my taste and I, I like reading kind of loads of different things. I just think, you know, it's people who can write in their particular area really well. Fantastic. It's great. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting. One of our authors was on a um, an interview yesterday. Was it yesterday? And he was talking about how poetry, he had to study poetry as part of his degree and how that informed his crime writing. You know, that sounds a bit odd, doesn't it? But he was talking about the rhythm and the choice of words and the power of words. And so, yeah. So I think it's I, true. I don't, I don't, I can't see there'd be any kind of writing that you wouldn't, it wouldn't inform your own writing in some way. You may not realise it, you, you know, maybe completely subconscious, but, you know, you will, you know, you will pick up things from it. Um, it's, it, I think it's really vital as a writer to, to although, you know, I, I do, having said that, I, there's one kind of writer I know, I remember asking them, you know, what, what other kind of writers do you, do you, do you, do you love? And they looked at me and go, I don't read other crime writers. I don't read crime. And I was like, well, how do you write? How, why do you, well, how do you write crime then? And they were like, well, I don't read other crime writers. So I don't want to be influenced. I don't want to, you know, start picking it. I just, you know, so I write what I write and I don't want to be influenced by anyone else. And, and I hadn't really thought about it like that, but I suppose there is a kind of logic to it. Yeah. Um, there are there are people. Who One of our authors that. gave almost identical answers Absolutely, to that question. Yeah. He said, I've right. never read a crime book. And we were talking <laughs> to, you know, someone who's sold millions of books in the last two or three years, J.D. Kirk at uh, London Book Fair. And he's, oh, yeah, he had he, He'd never read a crime book before he started writing one. I mean, he'd been yeah. in the industry 15 years writing mostly... He did children's books, kid, didn't he? Books, so, yeah. yeah. But decided right. now, and now he's taking the same approach to romance. Uh, yeah, he's really? going to write a romance book with his wife because he thought, why not give it a go? Yeah. <laughs> I've yeah. never read but one, but... Read yeah. What the genre expects, so... <laughs> well, I, I think that is that thing about being a writer, isn't it? Or, you know, creating stuff. I mean, because you, you, you want to create stuff that is individual. Um, and that feels new and different. Um, but at the same time, you're also, you know, I suppose me, you know, my ha- agent's hat on, you're trying to, um, ha- you know, urge writers to write stuff that, you know, people want to read. Um, but the, the flip side is if, you, if if all you're doing is just reading loads of others the whole time, just trying to go, what, what do other people want to read? Then the, the danger is that you end up writing stuff that just feels like an ersatz version of, you know, the real thing. It, it doesn't feel like the real McCoy. So I, I guess, you know, it's trying to find that balance oh, for most people, um, although you are going to get those people who read nothing in their genre or read everything, you know, they're, they're, kind of, they're, they're the outliers, I think, the yeah, extremes. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I, I'm intrigued. We face this challenge every time we open submissions, which is not as often as authors would like, frankly, because I'm a slow reader, so it takes me an absolute... And I'm a fast it. reader, but I, I I do tend to go off and read my own books instead of the submissions. Yeah, but, I mean, it, yeah. it, but it's, it's, it's amazing how quickly we can form a picture 
and I think the authors are surprised by this, um, of whether this is going to work for us or not. And it could be as as few as possibly even five pages, possibly even less than that. Yeah. That we'll think, yeah, this isn't going to be um, worth pursuing. Is that the same for you? Yeah, it is. And, and, and I know it's not what a lot of writers who write into us want to hear. You know, they want to hear that we look, you know, read the whole thing. Um, but the reality is, is that, you, you know, relatively quickly for a lot of them, whether it's something for you or it, or it isn't in the same way, you know, if you go and buy a book in a bookshop, um, you know, quite quickly whether you're enjoying it. Um, or you're watching something on TV or a film, you know quite quickly whether you're enjoying it. Um, so, so yes, like you, um, for a lot of them, I know relatively quickly. The easiest ones are the ones that I would jump out to you straight away as being brilliant. Um, yeah. The ones, unfortunately, the other end of the spectrum that are just just not. Um, the harder <laughs> ones, and, and you know, and that's no criticism of those people you know it's just you know it is hard to write a novel um the harder ones I, I find to judge are those kind of in the middle where you know you've started and you're like okay young yeah, I'm, I'm going to read on you know there's, there's something I like about this um and it's those ones that I find a bit harder because you know it, with a fair wind maybe the writer could make it work but maybe they can't and it's trying to judge then you know how how much is enough to read to know to make that decision and I think as I get you know as I get more experienced or as I did get more experienced as I get older you know I you know I make those decisions more quickly I think um simply because I kind of know what I like and you know but I'm always I always have in the back of my mind a story that another agent told me um and I won't tell you who it is, but he rep- he represents an author who you know, b- you know big bestseller, and he told me that when that author was trying to get an agent, they sent it to various agents, and um, he read this, and the first eighty pages were fine, but not great. But he just carried on reading, and in the end, they cut the first eighty pages. And he said, "Well, if I had, you know, if I'd stopped after ten pages." which maybe I was tempted to do then you know never would have taken this person on and maybe they never got published so so I do always remember that you know, yeah. I don't know if that's apocryphal or not but I remember that story because I think it's useful to remember because sometimes it is worth persevering with something where you think actually you know maybe you think well there's something here but maybe not um and particularly when you're busy and you're tempted to rush um you know because you've got other stuff going on Sometimes I'm like, okay, well, that little voice in the back of my head, that little story, I'm like, okay, well, you know, actually just give it a bit longer. So, so yes, we do make decisions quite quickly, but, um, you know, we try and give it, well, we definitely give it an, as enough time we, as I need to, to feel that I, mm. I, it, it's for me or not. And, you know, God, that, that's not to say that all the decisions that I make and take, you know, are the right ones. I mean, when I turn stuff down that, you know, someone else thinks is brilliant and, you know, but that's, that's just the nature of the job. Um, yeah, that that is, you know, have to be comfortable with that, don't you? Yeah. You know, it's always that thing, you know, the music industry who wants to be that person at Decca who turned down the Beatles, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't think you ever get comfortable with a feeling, but I think you 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 come to uh, an accommodation with yourself. There is there is no way that you can like everything or spot everything because if you could then everyone else would be able to do it and it would be a really easy job. And you know, you're taking yourself as an agent, you know, first and foremost because you really love it um just because you don't love it doesn't mean that it's not good or someone else isn't going to love it so i know it's hard for writers when you reject something and then they go on and get another agent and and some of them take that rejection quite personally and i get it but 
it's not a personal thing and it's not um it's just that it didn't do it for me or or whatever whichever agent has passed on it um obviously that accommodation is is slightly harder to live with if that author then goes on to become a multi-millionaire but a multi-billion bookseller but that is the nature of it unfortunately yeah, we have that fear too, don't we? With oh, the... yeah, we do. Yeah. <laughs> when they go, no, 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 look, look yeah, at my no, face. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's interesting when people come back and say, well, I've got a publisher now and, you know, I've got a yeah, well, whatever. I yeah. would say, yeah, well, that's fantastic. I'm really pleased for you. Yeah. Yeah, good luck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, most of the time for me, it's like, well, that's that's great. You know, it just, I wasn't the right fit. Yeah, Every exactly. now and then, Every now and then there are, there, there are things where I'm like, I, I should have taken that on. <laughs> and you know you, you don't you know i can't i, I don't know, yeah, i can't remember why i didn't you know there would have been a reason at the time but every now and then there's a bit of going actually that is my kind of book you know and actually if i go and go and read it and like it i go i should have taken that on but but most of the time it's like look it just wasn't for me you know um so that's a fair point now in terms of submitting to you as an agent in terms of you know we'll a lot of people listening to this will be aspirant writers uh, looking to find that that agent. What are what are the, the? I mean, I'm sure you give this advice all the time, but what advice would you give them in terms of the way they present it, um, and what's you know what what are the things they need to avoid as well? Um, well, I can give you the I mean the kind of real process driven answer and then i can give you the more general answer i mean so for us again i can only speak for us so our the way that you submit to us is through our website um there is a submissions portal and we ask for uh, a brief synopsis um a covering letter i think and then the first i think it's ten thousand words so i guess the first thing is that's what you should submit so there's no point in emailing us direct really um or not um submitting the things that we've asked for you know if you submit the second 10,000 words, that's not what we want. We want the first 10,000 words. So I guess for any writer, you need to follow the guidelines yeah. um, from the particular agents you're, you're approaching. Um, uh, you need to identify which agents you want to approach. I mean, that is that is that is the kind of first thing. You know, you need to find the agents that are going to that represent the kind of material that you are writing. You know, there's no point in sending your work to an agent or an agency that, let's say, 90% of their list is crime, but you've written a romance, for example, you know, because, you know, the chances are they're just not going to take it on. Now, most agents' lists are quite broad, but again, within that broadness, most agents have their own specific tastes. Um, and you can easily find that out by you go on their websites, you can Google, you can, you know, if you're in a shop and you find books that you really like, look in the acknowledgements pages at the back. Because <laughs> if the agent's done a good job and, and the author's nice, they might acknowledge them and say. <laughs> so, so there are there are lots of easy ways you can find out which agents and agencies you you should submit to. Um, um, and you know, because because otherwise you're just waste you know you're wasting your time by approaching agents who are never going to take you on. Um, um, and and then you need to make your submission. Um, and you need to follow the guidelines and you submit and then you need to wait to hear. And then if you haven't heard within the time that an agent suggests that they take to get back to you, you should follow up politely. Um, and, I, and I stress that last there's no point in emailing going, this is outrageous. You haven't replied to me in the time you said to me, because that's just going to put people off from replying. But, you know, we, we, we try and reply, you know, as quickly as we can. I think we send a website. If you haven't heard within maybe it's six weeks, then, you know, do get in touch. Um, and we try and reply as quickly as we can. O- often, you know, we can't just because 
different times of the year things get very very busy but it's much easier now that we do everything is electronic um when i first started obviously everyone sent in man you know um printouts <laughs> that was that was much harder to keep on top of because you know probably some of the listeners might not know that you know most of that reading gets done outside of work so it'll get done for me on the train on the way to work on the way back from work and at home so when it was like you know manuscripts you'd have to lug all these things with you you know in your rucksack you know and then you know if you want a packed train or a packed tube you couldn't really get the, you know the manuscript out whereas now you know i just download everything to my kindle so you you can read these things much more quickly and and it, and it has speeded up our response time um so so yes those are some of the things you should do some of the things you should, definitely shouldn't do don't don't send in doesn't happen so much now because things are more digital but in when I first started people would send often send in photographs of themselves um <laughs> but it wasn't it the freaky ones were the, like the people who send in like an a4 photograph of themselves that had obviously been like a it was like a semi-professional yeah. cna catalog shot um <laughs> and those are quite those are quite freaky um so definitely don't do that don't send <laughs> don't send bribes we've definitely had a few kind of people sending things through the post such as i mean this is, so my name's Thornycroft. It's a bit of a mouthful, but, you know, uh, but I did have someone call me Mr. Honeycroft once and sent me in a pot of honey. This is a game when they used to send it in hard copy. And, that, and, and I mean, I didn't eat the honey because I didn't know where it come from. And I can't remember if I took the author on or not. But, um, yeah, so you don't need to send bribes. Um, um, and, yeah, I think, I think and, and also, you know, make sure you get the name. And this sounds, again, very basic, but make sure you get the name of the agent correct. You know, sometimes we will get submissions come in and it will be addressed, you know, digitally or otherwise to an agent at a different agency. Um, and I'm afraid those tend to mm. just get in the bin straight away. Um, but, th- I mean, th- so those, these are all very kind of process-driven things that you can do. And, and in a way, it's a bit like, I would say, you know, you need to treat it like you're, you know, researching for a job and going yeah. for a job interview. You know, there are all these things that are easy for you to do. It's not going to necessarily mean you'll get the job, but it will, you know, it will make help. a better impression. It, yeah, it will help. It will make a better impression. Obviously, the most important thing is the stuff that you're sending in the material. Um, and that is, that is, that's the key thing. And I would just say you need to be, you need to think, if I'm reading 10 things a day, you know what is going to jump out at me so those and i know everyone says it but those first few chapters are really key now that could be you know I've, I've got to start my story with a bang you know i'm writing a very plotty novel i've got to get the reader into it you know straight away in the first two pages or it might be you're writing something much more you know literary and inverted commas you know that is not about plot or pyrotechnics in terms of what happens but it's about language and it's about character and you know so in those first few pages as a reader i want to be i want to be surprised um and and i want to feel that i'm in you know really safe hands you know i don't want to feel you know well i've kind of read this a hundred times so it's not a question of saying well this is what you need to do to get your work to stand out it's a question of thinking as a writer i think okay i need to be brave with what i'm sending out and i need to make sure that you know i can get a reader's attention as soon as possible um and because and i don't think that's necessarily an artificial way of approaching it because you know as you when you when anyone reads a novel Mm. you know if you're bored after 20 pages you might put it down you know 
if it doesn't grab you immediately, you're, you're not going to read on. So I don't think, you know, because I have heard some people say, well, it's, it's a very artificial way. You know, some writers are not like that. And I get it. Some writers aren't like that. But whether you're writing a so-called quiet novel or a much bigger, noisy novel, you've still got to show the reader something that makes them, will, will make them think, actually, yeah, I'm gonna, this is worth my time spending, you know, however many hours reading this. So I think it's important to be yeah, brave. I agree, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, think about the wider marketplace then, in terms of, you know, you've got your something that's going to hook you, you like it the way it's written, it's something that's intrigued you, you've read to the end, you enjoyed it. Um, we're getting to this point now, after two years of running Hoback, where we now have a slight commercial head on as well, where we're going, right, okay, it's a really good book, but, you know... We still Can we market it, yeah. Can we get it out there, and, and will there be an audience for it? Uh, presumably, that's a process you're thinking as well. With also the international aspect, because you know, increasingly, right sales are an important part of the the revenue. And also, uh, let's be honest, with all the different streaming platforms, people are looking for content that can be turned into TV and radio, uh, into films. So, it's um, there must be those elements that you're thinking as you're reading as well. Yeah, I mean, I think. Um... I think as an agent, you, you've got to be really hyper aware of, of the market, um, both here in the UK, but also abroad, um, because, you know, for a lot of authors, a lot of their income can come from those foreign sales. And, you know, there are some big markets out there, you know, whether they be Germany or, or whoever. Um, but also you've got to be hyper aware of, uh, I guess, you know, the creative market in general. You, you mentioned streaming services. You know, what is what, what are people watching on TV? You know what are what are people you know liking to watch on TV? Because quite often, you know that then translates into what people want to read in books or vice versa. So, you know, and you know, there's a there is um there's two TV programs like uh, the the Queen's Gambit and um, the Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, and um you know both those. I've only I've only watched one of them, but you know I know what the other one's about. But both of them, you know, are about women at a certain period um, trying to make it in what essentially was a man's world at the time, so fifties, sixties, um, and and I think that that's definitely, for example, something that readers are interested in. And there are certain books coming out now that you know novels that you know kind of tap into that. So if you as an agent, if you weren't really watching TV. Um, you wouldn't really know that. Um, yeah. And it just so happens that alongside reading books, I really like watching TV, which has been great during the pandemic because, you know, I feel my time. Um, <laughs> so, so yeah, so, so, so we have to be really aware of the market. But I suppose, you know, again, I come back to this thing that, you know, the starting point for me is, you know, do I love this? You know, do I love this writing? Do I love this idea? Um, and then it's about, okay, I love it. Do I think I can sell it? um and and do i think i can sell it in a big way you know for lots of money everywhere or do i think i can sell it but only in a small way um and if it's the latter you know nine times out of ten i'm still going to take it on because i love it and i think that you know you know if an author i think deserves to be published then they should be published and you know god knows there are lots of stories of authors starting small and then making it big later on so just because something that i love i think okay this might be a hard sell um i'm i'm still going to go for it um so yeah so the marketing the marketing knowledge is very much you know up here in my brain it's it's a it's a a part of the decision but it's not the it's not the originating part of the decision um 
I think it's it is harder. Well, I find it harder to represent stuff I don't really like, um, yeah. even though I think I can sell it. But you know, there, there is an aspect of that as well, of course. Um, mm. Yeah, I mean, so, we've, uh, we've said that about ourselves, haven't we? That we have to feel passionately about it in order to put all our effort and all our love into it, and and, and oh sell yeah, it. <laughs> you know, and, and there's a risk with everything because you know, yeah, ultimately, uh, yeah, you have to love it because sometimes. There's going to be a bump on the road. I mean, we've we've got examples of books which do nothing for three or four months. We still love them, and then suddenly, bing, they they take off again, and um, in a way that they didn't when they started out in the world. But uh, yeah. you know, absolutely. And 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 also, I mean, I suppose the calculation you're making. I mean, when you're signing on new talent, someone a first time author new to the market, that is also a really difficult proposition because there are a lot of you know, it's a crowded congested place you have to love what they do and who they are um in order to take that you know because it, it you do yeah you do yeah because it takes a long time to get there well particularly if you're picking up the phone to an editor going look i've got this thing it's you know you, you should I, I think you should read it before anything else i mean if you don't love it it's quite hard to be convincing um i, I tell you where that knowledge though is really useful is you know, is 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 in an author's career where you, you may have to change. You may have to think the author needs to change direction. Um, you know, maybe an author's been started off writing one thing, but actually, for whatever reason, could be that the market's changed, or you know, just sales have naturally you know declined for that particular author. You may have to say as an agent, look, I don't think you should continue writing what you're writing because there's just not a market for it anymore, or not a big enough market. Um, but you know, what you're really good at writing is x y and z these are the common denominators of what's made your books good so far and actually there's an area of the market now in in publishing that's really working that readers are really you know wanting to to tap into and read and find books about um and i think why don't you think about taking these the skill set that you have and using them in a different way to write something different so it's about as an agent it's about using your knowledge of the market to to often to prolong an author's career um and sometimes that is saying that you know you i think you should think about changing direction and sometimes it doesn't come from the the agent it comes from it comes from the author themselves they might say look i've been writing this you know i just don't think you know we're going to get to where i want to get to but i've been looking at something another area of the market i think that's an area i like i think i could write in that area you know what you know is it worth changing and sometimes i say yeah i think absolutely that's a really good idea and sometimes i might say well actually you're right but i think that area that that area of the market is about to dip so you know maybe you don't want to put all your eggs in that basket so that's where i think the knowledge of the market is really useful in in the i guess the longer term work of an agent um as well as being useful at that very early stage about you know where to place this and you know how to sell it so you're kind of like a critical friend as well aren't you yeah i mean i think you have to be honest with your authors i mean it's you know yeah you know that I mean, it is, it is, I mean, it is a fine balance because, you know, although the authors are paying you, I mean, they're paying you out of their commission. Um, you, you, you need, so you need to do a good job for them. And I, I've always been of the view, you need to be honest as an agent. And, and of course you can sugarcoat things, but you need to, you know, if there are issues or if there are things that need to be said in terms of helping their career, you need to be able to say it to them. Um, now, how you say it to them is, is it, you know, is a different thing, you know. But you need to be able to say it to them, and they need to be able to, they need to be able to hear that because 
if they are paying us as they are, they need to get the best agenting. And sometimes, you know, it does involve some hard conversations. Um, but hopefully you, you've got a relationship with the author you represent that's good enough and strong enough that, you know, you can get through that. Um, and sometimes it can be hard for authors to hear, um, you know, that the book they've written isn't working or that they need to really, you know, go back to first principles or something, um, or that actually, you know, what a publisher is suggesting about how they market it is the right way to go. Um, that's not to say that, you know, publishers are always right or agents are always right. And it's really important that you have to listen to your authors and, and an author often knows their, their own work better than anyone else. But, you know, it is a, it is about, it, it is a, I, I see the way that I view it is, it is a team. Um, and my best experiences and best results for my authors is when the publisher, the agent, and the author has worked as a team. Now, I know not all agents work like that, you know, and, and not all authors want that. You know, some authors want a more obviously aggressive, ball busting agent who's just who's, <laughs> who's just going to go and, the you know, shark. and yeah. And, and, and I'm not saying that's you know that's not as effective. It's just for me, I find it most effective you know, when those three elements are working together. And that, that, but that does mean that you then have to be able to have quite honest conversations with each other about what is working and what isn't. And that doesn't mean to say that as an agent, you're not then really pressing the publisher, um, not at all. But it does mean that actually, if things then aren't working, you are able to often find a solution, um, which is more than just three different parties shouting at each other and not getting anywhere. <laughs> so. Well, I think it's time for the ultimate challenge. Oh, is it? Yeah. Oh, right. Okay. okay. Which is, of course, Rebecca's random question. <laughs> so uh, we ask one of these random questions every week and they usually come about by something that's happened in our life. Now, we have just decided to take up tennis. And neither of us has played for a very long time. And we're actually playing tennis this afternoon, for me, for the first time for 30 years, except in the garden with the children. That doesn't count. So my question to you is, if you could take up a sport today, what would you take up and why? Oh, I thought for a moment you were going to ask me my favourite tennis player and I could <laughs> easily answer that. If I could take up a sport and why, um, oh, what would I do? I think I would take up something like hand gliding. And the re and I don't know if that's a sport, but I, I'm gonna count it. That'll, as a sport. that'll do, yeah, yeah that's fine. But but the reason I take it up is that I'm really scared of heights. And so it may sound really counterintuitive, but I suspect that the only way I could get over my fear of heights would be doing something that actually would be, I think, like beautiful and amazing. I think it would be really cool to be able to do it. So so I would take it up, not because it would immediately bring me joy, but I think I would overcome a fear and actually ultimately I'd grow to love it. Um, and also... We, we often used to go when the kids were younger to uh, the Brecon Beacons um, and it, you often see people, not so much, well, they're hang gliding and various other forms of, you know, that kind of activity off the Brecon Beacons. And on a good day, I always thought that that just looks amazing because the views there are spectacular. So if you were even higher up, it would be, yeah. So <laughs> that's kind of random, but that's my answer. No, that's well, I would also like to know who your favourite tennis player is now. Yeah. Uh, Roger Federer. You know, without a doubt, you know, combines, you know, combines, combines the best of Nadal and Djokovic and just, you know, and just does it all without breaking sweat. You know, that that's what I'd like to be in my life. Just someone who just could coolly go through life without it looking like I'm, I'm breaking a sweat. But uh, unfortunately, that doesn't often happen. No, I was no. going to say, I'm, I'm more of a, what's his name? Nadir? Nadir. 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 <laughs> 
That's out. That's out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's fine. You're taking up a sport, so you're going to be an you know in a year's time, you'll be an expert on, on everything tennis wise. Well, so. I'm actually I was actually inspired by a book I've just read. So it's by uh, Scarlett Thomas, who's a writer, and she oh, yes. uh, decided. Uh, before the pandemic of this one, she decided to retake up tennis that she was actually very good at as a teenager. So for she took a year of her life to get herself a ranking and she just went absolutely gung-ho, bought the kit, entered all the tournaments around the UK and she uh, got up to, I think it was number six in the UK for the over 40 women. That was her ranking. Wow. Like, Yay! Wow. That <laughs> is impressive. That is impressive. Um, I, thought, I thought, can I do that? <laughs> Absolutely, I love, but I love, I love the fact that these kind of, you know, books like that can inspire you to do something. I mean, yeah, it's so, the, and I know it sounds a cliche, but it's the power, it's the power of books, isn't it? You yeah, know, I, actually, I want to write to her and say, look, you've got me. Uh, I've bought a new tennis racket. We got some balls. We joined the club. <laughs> <laughs> but sometimes but, but sometimes books can work the other way so i mean it, to answer a different question like so one spot i definitely not take up is rock climbing um so i love reading books for, by rock climbers and about rock climbing like you know when i first was at curtis brown they represented joe simpson chris bonington mm. um and, and i since represented various climbers and i love reading those books i love reading about other people doing it because I, 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 I just think it is like a bonkers sport to do it, it it's so kind of knife edge so i love reading about it but i would never go and do it <laughs> so yeah that's the that's the spot i would never do but i love reading about it <laughs> i do like the fact that you want to conquer your fear by doing a sport so i have a phobia of balloons and so the thought of forcing myself to go into a room of balloons dressed in a suit covered in pins say for example that's like that's like the, the, a great kind of opening chapter for a dark crime novel yeah i'll be Shit. my crime novel <laughs> well I, i'm i'm gonna keep it simple and take up well I'm gonna... you're taking up tennis for me no no but darts i'm gonna go <laughs> oh darts yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm the bright bill for it. And, you know, with a name like Hobart's, I'm sure... He, he actually has a darts it. name already, so... Yeah. yeah, that's... I think that well, darts is great. Darts is fantastic. I actually I actually aided a book on darts years ago. And, oh, really? um, yeah, yeah, it was... it was, And it was great. It was a great book. So it was fantastic to read about this guy and, you know, all his experiences. So I think that's a good sport to take it's like up. like Murder on the Darts Board, was it? Oh. Yes, it was. Yeah, yeah. yeah we yeah, have a copy. We've got that. it. Yeah. By just by Justin Irwin, yeah, yeah. yeah. yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, there we go. It's serendipity. Yeah, no, I mean that's an amazing. It's story. in the kitchen. For those who don't know, <laughs> Justin was uh, in. The, he was CEO of a charity, wasn't he? And he decided that's right. that he, you know, he could hit one eighty flukily some some point, which is the pinnacle of of darts. And uh, so, therefore, why not give himself a year trying to become a pro? Um, it's exactly the same as the Scarlet Thomas book. I think page book, yeah. 72 is my favourite page of writing in the English language, uh, where it's got so many uses of the C word, um, <laughs> because the guy's got, he's playing a, an opponent who's got Tourette's, and every time he throws a dart, he's, he says... <laughs> I remember that, yes. It's yeah. an amazing piece. <laughs> it's an amazing scene. It really is. But it's um, oh, a great book. That I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad you like that. But that's brilliant. Um, yeah. yeah. No. It's uh, it's darts. Definitely a worthy sport to pursue. I think. 
Absolutely. Hang gliding, tennis and darts. There yeah. you go. Brilliant. <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure. We've gained so much from this and we'd like to thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you for coming on the Hobic. Hobot. No, no, I, <laughs> no I've been really, I'm, thank you for inviting me. It's great, it's great to be on. Um, um, it's a real pleasure talking to you both. Well, battling away with uh, with the cough, I'm sorry about uh, the, <laughs> the regularity with which that's in, invading this this podcast. Well, you and Honeypot, I think, um, as a, as the story he told us. Yes, <laughs> indeed, <laughs> brilliant, and a very very quick answer on the uh, on the on the challenge you he set. Did, didn't Rebecca's he did, didn't he? Yes, very quick answer, and I hope he sticks to it. <coughs> indeed, sorry, there's the cough again. <laughs> Well, um, we, we've had a busy weekend, but we had a busy week this week. Uh, loads to do. And, I mean, partly we were trying to catch up from the sort of COVID backlog. Yeah. I mean, you worked all the way through it regardless, and I, I just don't know how you did it. Um, and I was a bit patchier, but nonetheless, towards the end of the week, got my moment, momentum going. But the main thing I think that we will remember this week for is the first time you went to on a tennis court for very many years. About 34 years since I last was on a tennis court with a racket and a ball and a willing partner. Yes. Well, I was your willing partner. Um, I played a bit more than that, but it's been a few years and I've had a eight months out with a shoulder injury. I really couldn't have possibly considered tennis until about two weeks ago. No. started clearing up, which is weird. Maybe COVID cleared it up. Um, and uh, it was lovely to take on the court, but it's the first time you used a modern racket. Yeah. So last time I played tennis in the 1980s, the late 1980s, all, all the rackets were wooden, at least the ones in school were. Mm. Um, and my memory of those rackets was a lot smaller. The head was a lot smaller and very heavy, and would take quite a lot of. Um, they took a lot. Of, they took, took a lot, lot of pe- swinging. Yeah, they did. So you bought me a racket as a, as a gift, and that, the first thing I thought when I opened it was, "Ooh, it's really light. I can hardly feel it at all." Mm. Incredible difference. Well, we joined a club nearby Newport where the kids go to school, and that was lovely. And uh, we ventured onto the court and uh, started off very sort of teaching them the modern forehand. You did, yeah, and um, which went really well. Actually, you did, you picked it up really quickly, and you clearly enjoyed it. But um, what you said, I mean, it was quite strange because I, I mean, I'm not the fittest person by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, most of the time. I'm always battling some sort of ailment. Well, if, but, but if, you were the one out of puff this week. When, whenever we <laughs> climb a hill together, oh gosh, yeah. you you get out of breath much quicker than oh, I do, yeah, and I'm, I'm yeah. two miles ahead of you, and I turn around and I think, where's he gone? However, with the tennis, you didn't break a sweat. True. And I, I my heart was leaping out of my chest at one point. I thought I was going to die. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, look, it was you had a lot to think about because when you're doing something you're not familiar with which is physical mm. it does take a lot out of you and i know i know for a fact i made it much harder than it should have been because it was all new to me or re-new to me yeah well we'll, we'll we'll carry on i mean the weather's been very kind to us the last few days and we'll get out on the court this week see where we can get your, your I game can't to wait. i can't yeah. wait well that's really exciting it's nice to do something <laughs> different that's outside the barn and just allows us to take a little sort of breather from uh, you know, think about something else because you really can't think about Hobeck while you're on a tennis. No, game. I didn't think about Hobeck at all for the whole hour. That must be the only hour in the last two years. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's probably about right. That's probably about right. Well, that was uh, that was very pleasant. You went to the seaside. I took my uh, lad James to watch some cricket as well this week. I've actually paddled on both sides of the country because I paddled in Colwyn Bay, North Wales, mm-hmm. and then when while we were in Sunderland, Sunderland is right by the sea. 
I paddled in the North Sea. Yeah. So maybe I should go down to the South Coast next weekend. <laughs> we'll find a reason why. <laughs> we'll, 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 we'll do our best. Uh, let's uh, remind you, of course, that we don't just have uh, uh, the wonderful e-books and paperbacks that we, we sell. We also have a wonderful collection of audiobooks, and it includes... Uh, dare I say it, my narration of Waking the Tiger <laughs> by Mark Whiteman, now nominated for the John Creasy Award from the CWA Daggers. So, uh, you know, get across to our audiobook uh, website, which is part of our website, hobeck.net, and you'll find our audiobook catalogue there at a discount price. But uh, here's a little taste of what we've got on offer. Enter a world of great stories from Hobeck Audiobooks, from authors including Mark Whiteman, Linda Huber, Malcolm Hollingdrake, Essie Shepherd, Ollie Jarvis, A.B. Morgan, and Robert Dawes. Tamara Sullivan once more gave up on the book in her hand. She leaned back in her seat, closed her eyes, and prayed that the two-and-a-half-hour flight would bring less turbulence than the last few months of her life had managed to generate. Lottie's hands fought their way back to his hair. With a yank, she almost removed an entire clump. Stop the bloody car now, DC Bradshaw. That's an order. I squeeze the steering wheel to stop my hands shaking and lean forward to give myself the clearest view of the road. Last week I was looking forward to a holiday. Last week I had a future. She dreaded the answer to her next question. But why me? You must be aware that I haven't accepted any work for three years. You'd never request someone who'd been out of the game for so long. Unless... She stopped. Unless I had some special skill. Daria leaned over to kiss Evie's damp little forehead, then jerked back in horror as a long, deep horn blared and headlights from an approaching lorry swept through the cab. A single, sickening scream left Daria's soul as Evie's rucksack scratched across her face. Betancourt waved a languid hand. Later, he pulled away the cover. Working like a camera, his detective's eyes took in everything. The woman was young, probably early 20s. Prissy. Hobeck Audiobooks. We know the power of great storytelling. Well, we like to think we do. Uh, <laughs> next week, we are going to be at the Tunbridge, Royal Tunbridge Wells Literary Festival. We are. <laughs> in the no company time of, to stop, is there? No, Robert Dawes uh, and I are going to be on stage. And me, aren't I? Uh, Am I not? I don't know. I don't know how it works. Okay. Well, we'll find out next week. End. Yes. <laughs> that's right. Well, we're doing, um, I'm, I think I'm, I'm sort of leading the, the Q&A bit with Robert. He's doing a solo show. At the festival, but there are lots of uh, wonderful uh, names uh, going to the festival, including David Baddiel, Joe Brand, uh, Joe Brand, yeah, absolutely. So it's quite an eclectic mix of of, uh, of people. I like that though. I like it when they, you know, people who might not otherwise meet. Yeah. So we're looking forward to that. And, and uh, I've never been to Royal Tunbridge Wells. Uh, yeah, I, I, I nearly had a job there. Um, bailed out of the BBC before they moved there. So <laughs> okay. that would have... A lot of my colleagues went to went to work in, in Tunbridge Wells. Um, 
So it'll be nice to, 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 to bring you a show from there. Yes, that's the plan. Yeah. And then don't forget that very soon, in fact, in three weeks' time, we will be at uh, Crime Fest in Bristol. Yes, It's we a whirlwind, will. isn't it? I know, it really is a whirlwind. <laughs> it really is. So we've got that to look forward to as well. But uh, it remains for us to say thank you so much for listening to this week's Hopcast. We're sorry we're a bit bleary. After Speak so much, for yourself. After so much travelling, <laughs> uh, I certainly feel it. But uh, it, we've uh, really enjoyed speaking to you and, of course, to you, you and Thornycroft from AM Heath uh, joining us this week as our guest. So thank you again to him. If you want to know all about things Hobeck, www.hobeck.net is our online home. And there is so much uh, to, to find there. But from myself, Adrian Hobart. And myself, Rebecca Collins. We'd like to thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to the Hobcast Book Show, wherever you get your podcasts from. We really appreciate it. But we'll join you again next week. And we hope, in between times, you have a wonderful, creative week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Hobcast from Hobeck Books with Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins. You can find the show notes at our website, www.hobeck.net. You can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck online store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to the Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. Until next time, remember our motto, Trad Values, Indie Spirit. Indie Spirit.